know, when I think of New Year's resolutions, <clears throat> I think of Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if you've heard this story. You, you probably have. 20 years old, he decides he wants to attain to moral perfection. So he creates a scheme where, whereby he, he methodotic, method, methodically works on 13 different virtues, um, kind of giving particular attention every week to one virtue, uh, week by week, hoping that, that eventually he, he becomes morally perfect. And, of course, he never gets there. Uh, in his autobiography, he reflects on that experience, and, and he says, you know, even though there was a lot of good done, it really just made him realize how long of a way he had to go. So, so for example, when he was thinking about working on his humility, he, this is what he writes. In reality, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Disguise it, struggle with it, beat it down, stifle it. As much as one pleases, it is still alive. And every now and then, it will peep out and show itself. For even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. You know, even if you've never aspired to moral perfection, um, I, I think we've all, you know, and New Year's resolutions prove this, we've all resolved to improve ourselves at one point or another. You know, yes, we, we often blame our circumstances, we blame other people, but, but in brief moments of clarity, we, we realize that, that there, is things, there are things that are wrong with us and that we need to be changed, and we long for that change, right? But, but like Ben Franklin, um, resolutions come up short. The longing remains. And so 2014 is here. What hope do you have that this coming year is going to be a good year for you? And I don't mean, you know, again, things that you can't control. I mean in you. What hope do you have that 2014 will mean a more loving, more patient, more selfless you? I trust that's all. That's what all of us really want. Nobody says, you know, I hope to be more selfish, more irritated this coming year. And yet the question is, how do we get there? This morning we're wrapping up our study of Romans. And we've come to the last section, chapters 12 through 16. Having shown us the, the amazing panorama of God's mercies laid out in the first 11 chapters, Paul is going to bring it now to bear practically in our lives. It it turns out that theology and practice, though distinct, are inseparable. Uh, Right doctrine leads to right living. But the right living that the gospel brings isn't simply more resolutions. No, it's real transformation from the inside. And that's what we want. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
stop right there. That's a, that's a massive therefore there in verse 1. It, it really covers everything that's come before. And think about just those glorious truths that we've considered in walking through Romans. Uh, 118, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Uh, Romans 3.21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. 3.25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so here in chapter 12, Paul wants us to take all of that weightiness and, and rest it right here on this therefore, kind of like on a wedge, driving these, these commands into our hearts. The, the mercies of God are not simply for us to, to, look away, to look at and then walk away unchanged. No, the gospel has come in order to transform us so that we are no longer who we used to be. And Paul urges Christians to do this. In other words, this, this living sacrifice, it, that, this is not an optional part of the Christian life, you know, for, for the martyrs and the monks and the really spiritual. No, this is what's commanded for all who have seen the mercies of God. Not because this earns the mercies of God, but because this is the only appropriate response to his mercies. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. The gospel in which God sacrificed himself produces nothing less than a desire in us to respond in the same way. As those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we follow him on the road to Calvary. We take up our crosses and we give our lives in service to him. Uh, he, Paul describes this as our spiritual act of worship. In other words, worship, uh, there's a sense in which worship is not simply what we do kind of in this building, right? There's a sense in which worship, the, the adoration and praise of God, exists in all of your life. Your jobs, your homes, your vacations, uh, your eating, your exercising, your time on the internet. Offer your lives as living sacrifices. Yes, it's all of it. All of your life is meant to reflect something of God's glory and rule. And in verse 2, then, we see two components of what that, of what that means. We're not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world. The Bible here is not calling you to, to geographically separate yourself from, from, uh, from the world, from, from non-Christians. No, this is about rejecting uh, uh, the world's sin and unbelief and pride. This is about a, a moral separation. In other words, don't go back to your old way of life. Instead, in view of God's mercies, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is, this is the Spirit of God at work in the life of the believer to bring about real transformation, conforming us to the image of Christ. You see what's going on here. Even though 
Paul is about to give us four chapters of really good application, he actually doesn't have time to tell us what we're to do in every single situation of our lives. Um, and, and that's actually not even what we really need. We don't need more law. Rather, what we need and what the gospel provides is transformation, the renewing of our minds so that we're no longer who we used to be. Now, through the, through the gospel, by the Spirit, we are genuinely being conformed to Christ and being made new. We're being made into new people so that now, in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you're going you're gonna to just, because of who you are, you're going to feel You're going to speak, you're going to think, and you're going to act more and more like Christ. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, the answer is not found in me telling you uh, a bunch of commands. No, it, it is you constantly staring at the mercies of God and being and allowing that to renew you from the inside by His Spirit. Then, you will be able to test and approve God's perfect will. You know, even though this is God's work in us, God does it as we keep his mercies in view. You've, you've been hearing us say this for years, and yet it remains true. The, the gospel is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. It is for all of life. I, I know I have to keep saying it because I, I personally know how bad I am at doing that. Um, how often are, are we more content with just changing our, our outward behavior or changing our circumstances instead of believing the gospel in order that we might be changed you know, from the inside? If we are to be living sacrifices for, in, in all of life, then, then the gospel needs to be in view in all of life. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then, then this gospel is really what you need to hear the most. Uh, as Todd said earlier, though, though we have rebelled against God, though we de- deserve his just condemnation, God in his mercy has sent Jesus Christ into this world in order that he might give his life as a sacrifice for sinners. In his death, Jesus offered himself up as a living and a dying sacrifice uh, in the place of sinners, bearing the punishment that they deserve in order that sinners might be forgiven. And he rose from the dead to prove his victory over sin. And now any who will turn away from their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven, will be accepted by God. You're going to hear in the sermon a lot about how Christians are supposed to live. But what you need to understand is that that morality is never the basis of your acceptance before God. No, God has provided his son And it's only by faith in him that anyone here can be saved this morning. And you can be saved this morning. You can embrace that even today. Uh, the way is open for you to come to God through Jesus Christ. And, and if you want to talk more about that, if you want to think more about that, t- talk to any number of these Christians around you. Talk to me at the door. I would be glad to, to think with you further about what that means. All right, so... So what does this transformed life look like? In these next four chapters, Paul is going to highlight a number of applications. Uh, but if you're taking notes, we can basically divide these, these next two chapters into two categories. The gospel transforms how we live in the church, and the gospel transforms 
how we live in the world. How, the gospel transforms how we live in the church and how we live in the world. That, those are my two points, all right? So let's first think about how the gospel transforms how we live in the church. And I have three subpoints. So, so main point, subpoints. Uh, three subpoints humility, love, and unity. All right, humility, love, and unity. Let's think about humility first. Look with me at 12 3. <clears throat> 12 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each, one, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. I'll stop right there. The, the first implication of the gospel that Paul gives us is how Christians are to relate to one another within the church, within the body. Uh, we should be characterized by humility, not, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And the reason for this is because we have only come to belong in this body by the mercies of God. It is in Christ that we become one body. So, so if you're a member of Henson Baptist Church, as much as Paul goes on to talk about spiritual gifts, realize that those gifts are not the basis of you being a member of this body. Because, because some of you are actually really talented, and, and we're really grateful for your gifts. But you need to realize that the basis of you belonging to this body is only Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes us one. So, so even if someday, should the Lord take away those gifts, should you no longer have them, know that you still fully belong. You are one of us. By virtue of faith in Christ alone, you are as valuable and honored and welcomed in Christ as ever before. I'm struck by, by how Paul just, just naturally assumes uh, that to be a Christian is to be a part of a committed body. You know, ver- verse 5, each member belongs to all the others. This is this, this picture of belonging to one another. It really doesn't fit with the, the, the idea of, of church hopping, of, of picking and choosing different services from different churches. Rather, to, to be a Christian is to belong to a body of believers. It's to be in committed relationships with other Christians. So if, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've been coming to Henson for some time, but you haven't considered membership here, let me just ask you, why not? Um, our membership process that, that the elders and the congregation has put in place isn't meant to be difficult or burdensome. It's just a way for you to learn more about us, learn what we believe, and for us to learn about you, hear what you believe, and hear your testimony. Um, think about what Paul is saying here. And, and consider investigating what commitment in a local church would look like, whether it's here or in another gospel preaching church here in town. And, and I should be clear, though, there, there's so much more going on here than simply getting your name on a membership role, right? 
using this image of a body, there's this interconnectedness going on. There's interdependence. Um, No one member has everything they need just by themselves. But we need one another. We function and live together as a body. I think as as self-sufficient, independent Westerners, um, for us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought means that we need to begin to admit that we can't go at it alone, right? That, that we need other Christians in our lives. We need encouragement. We need help. We need teaching. We need mercy. And, and so much more. And, and that can only be found in other spirit-filled believers. God has provided them here in the local church. I picked on the regular attenders. Let me now pick on the members. Um, the, the idea of a disconnected member is grotesque, right? I mean, a, a limb just sitting on the side. If it's not connected to a body, it's, it's frightening. Um, each of you belongs to all the others. So the question is, what keeps you from having meaningful relationships here at Henson? Again, it's more than just having your name on the membership roll. What, what keeps you from having meaningful relationships here in this body? Could it be pride, thinking that you don't need all these other people? Could it be a low view of what God has done in bringing us together? What could you do to pursue meaningful relationships among the church body here? Um, how can you reach out and, and begin getting to know people in, in, in significant ways? And if you already have relationships here, um, what would it look like for you to broaden them, uh, to deepen them? I'm just asking questions here. And, and we all have various circumstances in life. It, looks like, it, look, it will look like many different things. Um, but if you're not sure how to answer those questions, let me invite you to talk to any of the elders. Uh, we long to see deep relationships formed within the church body. And I know that any of the elders would be glad to sit down with you, think through kind of the circumstances of your life, and then what it would look like for you to connect with other believers here in this body. I, I think in large part, that's what spiritual gifts are all about. You know, the, if, you, if you look at this list, they're all relational. I don't think this is an, ex- an exhaustive list, but what Paul is listing out really are, are ways that God has equipped his people to care for one another and to help one another grow in grace. The point is that if there's something you do that God uses to build up others in this body, you know, where somebody says, wow, that, that was really encouraging. That was really helpful. That, that was an answered prayer. If there's anything like that, then, then with humility, do it even more. You know, do it with more diligence, with more cheerfulness, with more generosity, because that's how God has served us. All right, so that's humility. Second, uh, the gospel creates love within the body. Look, look at 12 verse 9. It creates love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I like verse 21 there. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here we have just a a string of commands that Paul gives us, but they all fall under that header in verse 9. Love must be sincere. It must be genuine. And what we really see here in this list is that love in a fallen world is really hard. If only people were more lovable, uh, maybe love would be easier. No, but but love is hard. It it takes discernment. Um, You see there in, in verse 9, that, that unlike the new tolerance of our culture, sincere love does not tolerate evil, but clings to what is good. There, there in verse 10, we see that, that love exists in the context of a family. It, it's brotherly affection. Uh, this is the church family. We are to love our brothers and sisters, honoring one another above ourselves. Notice in verses 11 to 12, how Christian love needs to persevere. Right? Zeal and passion is, is, actually pretty, is actually doable. It's pretty easy um, if it's temporary. But to show sincere, passionate f- kind of love and spiritual fervor for a lifetime to the same people week after week, that, that's hard. And that takes supernatural power. The, the command there in verse 12 to be faithful in prayer just, just really practical. You know, how are we doing in that? Remember, the context of this passage is, is love within the church, so, and not just kind of your private prayer life. So, so how are you doing praying for this church? How are you doing praying for your fellow members? I, I, know, I, said, I, I know I kind of downplayed resolutions in the beginning, but here's a great resolution for 2014. Um, c- commit to that most basic act of Christian love for one another, which is praying. Pray for the members of your church regularly. You, you, you got one of these before. If you, if you don't have a membership directory, pick one up at the Welcome Center. Um, commit to praying through this regularly, a, a page a day, um, every day for 2014. Um, if you do that, every month you'll pray for every single member of this church. Well, you might have to pray through two pages a day, you know, otherwise the Zimmermans will get left out. But... Uh, Basically, a page a day for, for every day, 2014, praying through the congregation, um, praying, praying for good things in their lives. Uh, can you imagine what, what good that would do in your own heart, but also in our, in our own body as we commit to praying for one another in 2014? You know, in our selfishness, verse 15 is actually one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? To, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn. When someone has something that, that we don't have but we want, it's hard to rejoice with them. Uh, when, someone, when someone is mourning and we're not, it's hard for us to, to, to mourn with them. And yet that's what it means to be a body. That's why we've made uh, weddings and funerals o- uh, open to the entire congregation, uh, especially if they're for members of Hinson. 
don't show up only when you know the people who are involved. Rather, commit to being here whenever they take place as you're able. Um, as a testimony of the truth that we're a church, we're a body, and therefore we mourn and we rejoice together. Of course, in a fallen world, we see here that, that there will always be conflict. There will always be, be evil done. And that's true even in the local church. Um, sin remains. Real hurt can occur even among brothers and sisters. And yet Paul gives us a different way forward. Don't respond with the evil with the weapons of this world, instead respond, instead overcome it with the grace of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, when you've been hurt, it says here, return it with a blessing. Pray for the good of the one who's hurt you. Pray that God would be at work in their lives. Examine your own heart, your own heart for pride. We see that here too. Be quick to see and to confess your own faults. Commit yourself to pursuing peace, not revenge. You know, verse 18, is, I think, is just such a gracious way to put it, isn't it? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Uh, that's, that's encouraging. God, God knows that there are situations where peace is just out of our control. And, and actually, some of us need to learn to accept that and let it go. And yet for others, we need to realize that there is still a lot more that we can do in pursuing that, that peace. We can do this only as we remember that God is the judge, not us. And yet this is the very same God who overcame our sin, not with wrath, but with love. And therefore, we, we follow his example. So that's love. Third, unity. Unity. God, the gospel brings unity here. Look at, look at Romans 14, verse 1. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Sounds like Portland. Uh, actually, different context. Um, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Look down at verse 13. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus... I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. And then look down at 15 verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. I'll stop there. The gospel is the good news that God has welcomed all people, both Jew and Gentile, into the family of God. What, what this means is that the church 
will always be made up of people with differing cultures, differing backgrounds, even, even differing convictions. You see the way this played out in the Roman church. Jewish converts are coming into the church with all of their cultural restrictions on food and Sabbath that they've carried with them all their lives. And Gentile converts are coming into the church, and they've had none of these restrictions kind of all their lives. Um, And now they have to figure out how to live together, right? And this is creating particular conflict because this isn't just about preference, but but rather for both parties, this is a matter of conscience. Um, for, For the Jewish converts, they refuse to eat because for, for their weaker consciences, they, they see it as sin, as unclean. And, and for the Gentile converts, boy, they are rejoicing in their freedom in Christ. And they want to live in that freedom. So what do they do? Well, notice that the answer is not to create two churches. The answer is not to have a kosher church and a meat church. Um, rather... It is for them to accept one another, accept one another. Those who struggle with eating meat are not to condemn those who eat meat. And those who eat meat aren't to look down on those who don't. Not only that, but those who are strong should do whatever they can to help those who are weak to not stumble. And they shouldn't flaunt their freedom, but they they should be willing to accommodate the weak. In all this, what both parties need to remember is that the, their fellow brothers and sisters matter way more than, than food, than, than these disputable matters. And again, this is the perspective that Paul brings, right, into this whole discussion, that the mercy of God at work in each other's lives. Uh, 14.3, the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Right? 14.15, Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. 1420, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And and he does this even more uh, in the rest of the passage. You know, something that we often miss when we have these kinds of conflicts is the truth that salvation is God's work. It's God's work. It's not yours. Yes, God calls us to admonish, to help one another deal with sin. But there's a sense in which we need to realize that we are not the Holy Spirit. Um, Only God can save. Only God can change people's hearts. And if God has accepted them through the gospel, then, then who are we to refuse them? So what are these sorts of issues here at Henson? I thought long and hard about this. Perhaps for some, it's, it's, it's the issue of alcohol. Perhaps some of us have, have, have sensitive consciences in that. I know in the past there has been conflict about whether or not to allow dancing in this building. Um, for, for some of us, it might be about how people show up at church, uh, whether we're dressed up or not. Uh, I know in my previous church, uh, some were really bothered when, when young people would show up with coffee cups you know, into the worship service, uh, kind of communicating a kind of casualness that they felt uncomfortable with. Um, I, I think for, for some others of us, um, we, we might have real sensitive consciences about certain environmental issues. 
uh, social causes. You know, thankfully, as I try to think about this, there, there wasn't kind of one big glaring di- kind of di- division that, that, po- that came to mind um, here at Henson. And I'm really thankful for that. But nonetheless, I, I do get the sense, well, that, that, that we have differences. We have disagreements, that, that there are points of convictions where we disagree with one another about what is permitted and appropriate for the Christian. And my point today here, then, is not to settle all those differences. Rather, what, what God's Word is telling us is to live in unity in spite of those differences, to accept one another, accept those who have different convictions than you. There really is a place for talking about your disagreements, but never in a way that, that condemns another, never in a way that, that forces another to violate their consciences. Because what's at stake here, you see, is nothing less than the truth of the gospel. If we make, say, eating or not eating meat a requirement for being a part of a church, then effectively what you've done is added a new requirement to the gospel. In effect, you are saying in order for you to be welcomed, accepted by God, you need to believe in Christ and follow these rules. And we don't want to do that. In other words, how we live as a church will always reflect the gospel that we proclaim. So are these two messages consistent here at Henson? Or are we contradicting ourselves? On these kinds of matters, on these disputable matters, we're not talking about doctrine. We're not talking about the gospel, the statement of faith. Um, On these disputable matters, let's make up our minds not to pass judgment, but, but to bear with one another, to accept each other in love just as Christ has accepted you. So, so there it is. What, what does a church, a gathering of transformed lives look like? Humility, love, and unity. You know, Christianity makes a pretty bold claim. Uh, it says that through the gospel, God can take any group of people, just, just uh, as diverse as you might imagine it, no, no matter how previously hostile and hateful to each other, no matter how prideful, how picky and particular they might be, the gospel can take those people and cause them to live together in, in, in humble, loving unity because of the gospel. Because the gospel, the mercies of God is that powerful. And, and Henson, we get a chance to, to do that. Uh, let's prove the truth of the gospel together. By living this out before a watching world. All right, so the gospel transforms how we live in the church. What about in the world? How, how should the gospel change how we live in the world? That's what we think about next. The gospel transforms how we live in the world. And again, three subpoints submission, holiness, and mission. All right, submission, holiness, and mission. Look at. Chapter 13, verse 1. First of all, submission. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You know, these verses have challenged and vexed Christians throughout the centuries. How in the world can Paul say this in such an unqualified way, right? Given all the corrupt authority that has existed throughout the ages. And we have to remember that Paul himself lived under a corrupt government. Uh, The Roman government then was by, by no means perfect. Well, whatever he means to say here, it must apply to all Christians. Because, because he himself, as I said, lived under a corrupt government. And therefore, this applies, whatever it means, this applies even to those who live under fallen, imperfect human authorities. And I think what Paul is giving us here is a principle. The Bible teaches us that human authority is not intrinsically evil, but is established by God. Uh, governments are not a necessary evil, but, but rather they are meant, they are a gift from God. They are meant to be a blessing for the people that they serve. Therefore, as Christians who submit to God's authority, we also gladly submit to human authority. And, and that, that's true whether that means parents or husbands or church leaders or even human governments. In other words, what this is saying is that rebellion against authority, human authority, is not an implication of the gospel. All right? I mean, you can, you can imagine why some people would think that. Because we talk about how the gospel frees us from the dominion of this world. We, we, we talk about how, how, how Jesus is Lord and, and not Caesar. Right? We, we believe that our citizenship is in heaven, not here in this world. And yet, as Christians we believe that human authority is established by God. And we are to not only submit to it, but we are even to honor it. Even if we didn't vote for it, even if we disagree with it. Uh, Brothers and sisters, what you need to realize is that this is part of your witness to the world. So much of this world is anti-authority. But that's not us. Christians are not anarchists. Um, And interestingly, historically, Baptists have wanted to make this very clear. uh, Because, you know, Baptists aren't, we're we're not part of this hierarchical church structure, you know, with with a a presbytery or or a bishop, you know, having authority over the congregation. Um, Baptist churches have always been congregational. uh, and, And they... 
and they were popping up all over the place throughout American history. And so opponents are, are accusing Baptists of being anti, anti-government, anti-authority. And, and so uh, from the very beginning in, in the New Hampshire Statement of Faith, which was adopted by many Baptist churches, I think including this one, this was our original Statement of Faith, um, Baptists made this statement. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society, that magistrates are to be prayed for and conscientiously honored and obeyed, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. Baptists put that in their statement of faith to make it clear that that, that we're not anti-authority. And I've known many Christians in China who have been so glad to point uh, Romans 13 to Romans 13 to their non-Christian friends as a way to, to, to defend that fact, that, that the communist government is wrong when they accuse Christians of being kind of rebellious dissenters. Well, here in America, I think that the challenge of living this out is renewed particularly given the, the moral revolution taking place in our society. How can evangelical Christians, who are no longer the majority, but now simply a, a minority voice among a plurality of voices, how can we speak and act in a way that is humble and prophetic and truthful while still honoring those in leadership? How do we participate in in the system of government that that we live in according to our consciences, even while affirming the the good gift of authority that God has established? You know, these are important, difficult questions for for Christians. Um, And and, and we need to be talking about these things. And and yet even now we believe that God is sovereign, uh, that fallen human government exists under his control. And in view of his mercies, we can trust. We can submit. Second, holiness. Holiness should characterize our lives. Look at 13.8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. 13.11. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, close yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You know, what these verses talk about is how we're to conduct ourselves in light of the fact that Christ is coming back. And and notice what's not on here. There's nothing in here about figuring out timelines. There's nothing in here about predicting what prophecies mean. Um, There's nothing in here about Israel and politics. Rather, how do we prepare for Christ's return? By loving our neighbors, by living in holiness. I love the image here that Paul gives in verse 12. Yes, it's, it's, it's night. It looks like it's night. It's dark outside. But it's actually 5 o'clock in the morning. And, and while everyone is still sleeping in their pajamas, Christians 
are beginning to get dressed because King Jesus, the light of the world, is coming. And you don't want to be caught unprepared. So, so put aside those deeds of darkness. Put aside immorality, drunkenness, dissension. And instead, put on Christ. I love that. You know, the, the replacement for sin is not self-righteous morality. No, the replacement for sin is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the obedience that flows from that. Even while it's dark, begin living in the light. Bring the holiness and purity that you will one day live out in heaven into your life now. Begin living out now what you will one day be. I think this this stark picture of night and day paints for us uh, the truth that um, that as much as we might agree with our non-Christian friends about many things, at the end of the day, Christians will always have differing priorities. Why? Because only Christians believe that Christ is coming back. Only Christians live in view of that day. If Jesus is coming back and God is one day going to judge, then that really changes our thinking on what really matters, doesn't it? Uh, as much as we might partner with, with non-Christian friends to do all kinds of other good things in our community, education, you know, environmental things, fair housing, so forth, as good as those things are, they are never ultimate. What is ultimate is the salvation of souls, the preaching of the gospel. And, and this, has, this is only possible through the mercies of God. And so this leads us to then the last point, which is mission. Mission. Look at Romans 15, verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no place for me to work in these regions and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. I'll stop there. Uh, Beginning in verse um, 14 here here in chapter 15, what we have here in these verses are not so much imperatives, as we've been seeing, but but Paul's upcoming travel plans. Uh, And behind these plans is, is how the mercy of God has shaped Paul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul is headed off to Spain to preach the gospel, and he's hoping that the church in Rome might send him there in order to support his efforts there. That's why he's writing this letter. Uh, He's not assuming that they have the gospel in common, but he's writing this letter in order to make it crystal clear uh, what they believe, in order that they can support him with full confidence in his mission. What does Paul mean there in verse 19? That, that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, this, this whole swath of, of area from, Jerusalem, from, from Israel all through minor Asia, 
that he has fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ and that there is no more place for me to work in these regions? Does Paul really think that every single person in that area has heard and believed the gospel? Well, of course not. Rather, what Paul means is that throughout all that region, churches have been planted. And now the work of reaching people in those areas is being handed off to these churches. Paul's passion then is to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Because that's what God has promised in his word. The gospel we preach to those who have never heard, even to the ends of the earth. God will have for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This isn't just one way of doing missions. No, this is God's people understanding what God is doing in redemptive history and jumping on board with that task. And this is the work of all of God's people. Notice that Paul is not just going off to Spain on his own, but he is rather looking for the support of other churches, churches that agree with him on the gospel, churches that will pray for him and will support him financially and will be involved in the work. As John Piper says, there are three kinds of Christians, the the goers, the senders, and the disobedient. And so there is much that this says to us today. You know, God has richly blessed Hinson with, with solid Bible teaching, with community, with, with gifts, with resources. But realize that all of that does not just exist simply for our own benefit. Rather, we understand that God is calling us to use all that he has given us to see this world reached for Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we have a responsibility in this task of missions. And that's not something we can delegate to anybody else. You know, historically, churches have taken a more kind of sponsorship approach, delegating missions to, to parachurch missions agencies. But, but these days, the, the missions landscape is changing. Missions agencies are realizing that they need churches to be more engaged. Uh, traditional avenues for missions are, are, are much more rare. And, and, and particularly in closed countries, there need to be kind of more creative ways to enter into those places. Rather than thinking of missions in in geopolitical kind of terms of of nations, our understanding of ethno-linguistic people groups has grown. And that's closer to what the Bible is talking about when it talks about nations. Not only that, but there's a renewed emphasis in frontier missions of sending missionaries along with Paul to those places where Christ has not been preached. And yet, in, in an increasingly globalized world, there are opportunities to reach unreached peoples right here in our city. What all this means is that as a church, what should drive us in our missions is not tradition, but a, but a proactive, a, a congregation-wide engagement and adaptability and interest in missions. Now, our gospel hasn't changed, and that will never change. But with Paul, in view of God's mercies, we want to do what it takes to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So again, if you're a member of Henson, this means praying for your missionaries. They're in the back of the membership directory. If you pray through the directory, you'll pray for your missionaries every month. Pray, pray for them regularly. It means giving to the church budget, which supports work all around the world. Uh, 
consider joining a short-term mission trip, especially now that we're connecting these short-term trips to the long-term work that we support. There are a number of ways that we can be praying together as a church for missions, from, from women's missionary circles to, to our Sunday evening prayer meeting. There's, there's a perspective class coming up here in January. Ask Steve Morgan if you're interested about that. Most of all, most of all, if you want to be serious about missions, keep the mercies of God in view such that your heart longs for him to receive maximum praise for what he has done. This is how the gospel transforms how we live in the world. Can you imagine the people who are characterized by these things? Not, not rebellion against authority, but submission. Not licentiousness and sin, but holiness. Not worldly ambitions, but a passion for the gospel preached throughout the world. You can't find this anywhere else. The gospel transforms us to do all of that. And this shows the world that something supernatural has happened right here. Well, in chapter 16, Paul closes with some, some, some parting greetings, words full of warmth, love, encouragement. Um, we don't know many of these people. Uh, we don't know the stories that, that are contained in these names. And yet, I, I just find as I looked at these names, I, I was just so encouraged to see these names recorded here. You know, the world didn't notice them. But, but God took note of every single one of them. You have, you have hardworking Mary. You have Epinetus, the, the, the first convert in Asia. You have Phoebe and Hermes, Perseus, Nereus and his sister, Olympus. No, th- these weren't heroes of the faith, and actually neither is Paul. I mean, these are just kind of ordinary people, right? But they heard the gospel, the same gospel that we've heard, and they believed. And their lives were transformed forever. And now they've been caught up in that grand story of God's salvation. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, this is your story. God has noticed you. The world might not have noticed, but God has noticed. You belong to him and to his people He will conform you to the image of his son. The day is coming when Satan and sin and death will be crushed under your feet. Let's live in light of that day. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would illumine your mercies before our eyes in order that we might see it better. God, Remove anything that would give us a small view of your mercies, but instead cause us to see it for what it is and then transform us that we might live appropriately in response. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.